0: This week's podcast episode is brought to you by you, the listeners. A big thank you to everyone that's contributed a dollar or more per episode via my subscription-based funding platform at patreon.com/oceanallison. For those that haven't, visit patreon.com/oceanallison to watch my video and learn more about how you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. The ocean and I greatly appreciate your support. And now to this week's episode. This week's Ocean Advocate is Sarah Chin. Sarah is a marine physiologist at Sonoma State University, studying both the lives and deaths of California's sea otters. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Hi. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, very good. And I'm glad to have you on the show today. I've been actually wanting to have a sea otter scientist on the podcast for quite some time now and, you know, was unable to really connect with the right person thus far. But listeners, you might remember, I had Sean Bogle from Eyes on Conservation studying the Endangered vaquita in Mexico on the show a few weeks ago, and I was chatting with Sean and brought up that I've been looking for a sea otter scientist to have on the show, and he said, "Well, actually, you know, I might, I might actually know someone." Um, and he introduced me to Sarah, who happens to actually be his girlfriend. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that that's how Sarah's on the show today. And Sarah and I connected, and she sent me her most recent published paper about sea otters and I thought she was a perfect fit. So, part of the reason that I've been wanting to have a sea otter scientist on the show is because I mean, to be honest, they're kind of everyone's favorite marine mammal, you know. When you ask most people, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you think of a sea otter, they just immediately think cute. You know, they're they're very charismatic ocean animal. And so, I think that people are really interested in sea otters and care a lot about them and so, you know, in trying to make topics of my podcast very diverse I think you know <laughs> to include sea otters totally makes sense and to kind of go back to the cuteness of sea otters it's it's pretty ridiculous I mean even I with a marine biology background and a, I try to look at animals in a bit more of a scientific way I still you know I, I recently had an experience where I was surfing in Santa Cruz and Sea otter, you know, swam pretty close to me and is looking at me, and it's just like, you know, it kind of it melts my heart, which is, you know, pretty ridiculous to say, but I think a lot of people feel that way. And so, Sarah, I'm wondering for you, you know, having studied sea otters for several years now, has your reaction to sea otters, you know, whether you you see them off the side of the boat or in the kelp forest or whatever, has your reaction changed to them, or have you just kind of gained knowledge about them, or is that cuteness factor maybe diminished for you?
1: So that's that's a really good question. And, and you've kind of hit a lot of sort of almost hot topics for some sea otter biologists. So in terms of answering your question, it, it's a little bit of both. Like they, the one of the really great things about sea otters is that people think that they are so darn cute. And that really helps them as a species because People like looking at things or they like to invest time in things that they think are cute. And, you know, it it may not actually be the best way for, for people to really think about animals, but it draws people in. And that's important for sea otters because then people pay attention to them. And that's important because sea otters are a threatened species. So I guess in terms of growing up in California, I grew up in the Bay Area, was really lucky to be able to go to the coastline and go to Monterey when I was little and to see sea otters in the wild. And of course, I also went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium and got to see them there. And as a lot of kids are, you know, you just become obsessed with these sea otters because, yes, they draw you in. They're charismatic, they're really fluffy and cute, and they have these really cute round faces and big noses, and they just, It looks like they're just having so much fun in the water. So, of course, the kid, I'm like, oh, they're my favorite. They're so darn cute. But as a really young child, like I think it was in sixth grade, my teacher, just her thing was marine mammals. So we did book reports. Every kid had to pick some marine mammal and do a report on them. And so I picked sea otters. And from that, from this really young age, I got to, you know, I, I, I went into the magazines, I went into textbooks, and I really got to learn about sea otters more in depth, just more than, you know, watching them, what looks like them playing in the water and hanging out in the kelp forest. And so I got to learn about them. And then I learned this concept of keystone species, which is, you know, the, the sea otters in particular are keystone species in the kelp forest, which means that they play this really important, critical role in the habitat and the ecosystem, where without them, the ecosystem would pretty much fall apart. And, And that means things like in the case of a kelp forest, that species diversity would go down, species richness would go down. So there wouldn't be as many fish species. And if you like to dive, you wouldn't see as many invertebrate species like the sea slugs or the sea stars and things like that without sea otters, because sea otters play this really crucial role in feeding on sea urchins and sea urchins are really ravenous predators on plants and so they really like to eat kelp and without sea otters eating them they end up eating all the kelp so anyhow i learned about this really important concept in ecology about keystone species so at a young age i started learning more about sea otters it, it may sound cliche but yes sea otters were my favorite animal growing up and and then once i graduated college i started doing some field work i just kept thinking wow, one day if I can get there and I keep doing this, I really want to work with sea otters. And so lo and behold, uh, my dream came true (laughs) and I got to work with with sea otters. And it was incredible and amazing and just to actually – be able to for my job just to observe these guys in the wild and from working with some great sea otter biologists I learned so much more about them so and this is this is sort of where you get into this controversial topic of you can't call sea otters cute you hear you hear some biologists saying that because Even though that is sort of like the commercial value and sort of the popular thing that people, when they look at a sea otter, oh, it's so cute, look at it, it's plain, etc., etc., as a biologist, when you study them, you get to know what their behavior is. It may look like they're playing and rolling around in the water, but what we actually know what they're actually doing And then we know a little bit more about them because we're watching them quite a bit. And so we see, like, they're not just a cute face. They're a lot more complicated than that. So um, some terms that you're not allowed to use in, in front of some sea otter biologists. You can't call them cute. You have to think of a different word to describe them. But, <laughs> but well, you know, I mean, they really are. They're adorable and they're charismatic. And it really is one of the best things about sea otters to draw people in. And that initial, like, when you look at something, if it appeals to you, then hopefully you'll start caring about it. And that, that is really, you know, a great thing about sea otters.
0: And hopefully they still appeal to you. And that, that helps you kind of keep going with your research right
1: absolutely they're so complicated and they're so interesting and that I I just like to say you know they're more than just a cute face they're more than a pretty face
0: yeah so for listeners Sarah has recently defended her master's thesis at Sonoma State University and her research actually brought to light some really important implications into the reasons for sea otter mortality why sea otters might die And this has been really important because for a while, scientists and and the public in general have been kind of confused as to why sea otter populations off the California coast haven't been bouncing back to the numbers that were kind of expected or projected. And so before we get into talking about Sarah's master's research and and the findings that she found out about why sea otters are, are dying... I think it's important for us to talk about the history of sea otter populations. So, Sarah, can you explain to listeners why did sea otter populations decline to begin with and how has their population trajectory been since that height of their population decline? So, sea otters
1: have been really commercially important. And that's because in the 18th and 19th century, there was this really big demand for fur, And sea otters have the densest, most luxurious fur of any mammal on the planet. They have about anywhere between like 100,000 and a million hairs per square inch covering their body. So to put that into a little bit of context, if you can imagine all the hair on your head smushed into just one square inch of space that's how much hair a sea otter has on its body. Their fur is just so dense. And so there was this demand for this really, you know, just luxurious fur to make into fur coats, hats, mittens, things like that to keep people warm. Um, So in the 18th and 19th century, primarily it started, it was started by Russians to commercially hunt sea otters and other fur-bearing animals such as other weasels and fur seals. And This fur trade really decimated the sea otter population. And just to kind of back up, um, historically, the sea otter population ranged from Japan, the islands just north of the main island of Japan, through Russia, through the Aleutians, so heading towards Alaska, through Alaska southeast, and then the entire coast of North America, south to as far as Baja So that was the historical range of sea otters. And now, because of the commercial fur trade, the population has been fragmented. So just currently, there is a sea otter population found in Russia, the northern sea otter, which is found through the Aleutians, Alaska, Canada, Washington. And then I studied the California or southern sea otter. And so it's really the fur trade through Russia, through their entire range that decimated the population. Um, And so they've got fragmented subpopulations right now, and some of them are doing better than others. But really, it was this fur trade and demand for fur that went up until the early 20th century that sea otters were just taken by the thousands to really just satisfy human consumption in terms of like fashion.
0: What about in terms of numbers? You know, You talked about their range before the fur trade and industry really ramped up. What are their population numbers today? I'm not really familiar
1: with the actual population numbers of the subpopulations, except for California is where I've done most of my research and can definitely give you good numbers there. So the southern sea otter population, which ranges from in the north part at about San Mateo County, And then it goes all the way south through the southern Bight to about Santa Barbara. Through the 90s and through most of the early 2000s, the population had kind of plateaued. And it was hovering around like 2,800, 2,900, just under 3,000. And for about between 10 and 15 years, the population was just stable at this, what scientists kind of tended to consider this pretty low number under 3,000. And then it wasn't until um, the past couple of years the population has increased a little bit. So we're at about 3,000. And the last population census was just over 3,090. So it's about 3,100. And that's an important number. 3,090 is the number that the southern sea otter population needs to be at for three years in order to be considered to be delisted from the threatened species list by um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So that's an important number. And we've done that for one year. So hopefully for the next couple years, sea otter populations will keep growing and be at least at 3,090. But we've seen population kind of fluctuate. However, it's hovered around 3,000 for about the last decade, give or take.
0: And that's great to hear that the population is actually increasing some each year. But that's still a very small fraction of what their historical population was off of the California coast. Is that right?
1: Exactly, yes. So one of the big concerns about sea otter recovery in California was that why wasn't the population growing at these really high growth rates that you see in other areas that sea otters have just either been reintroduced or have migrated back to? So if they were extirpated, from an area before, and then they made their way back. Then we, in a lot of places like in um, British Columbia and places in Alaska, you've seen that once sea otters come back, their population tends to increase on the range of somewhere between 15 and like 25, almost 30% for quite a few years, you know, in, until population sort of stabilize And that has to do with uh, mostly food availability. And so we never actually saw that in California. So even um, when sea otters, started coming back from the fur trade. We never saw an exponential population growth like that. And so that is sort of the big core question with Southern Seattle recovery. is like, why don't we see that? What's going on with this population? Because we know it happens. It's very prevalent within the northern population. So they can do it. Why isn't it happening in California?
0: Listeners, I I mentioned earlier that Sarah's research really brought light to a reason why Some sea otters off the California coast are dying. Basically trying to make sense of that conundrum that, that she just touched on. You know, why aren't we seeing population increases like we're seeing in other places? And so basically what Sarah's research was primarily focused on and, and the subject of her most recent scientific paper that she published is called end lactation syndrome. And it's a syndrome that causes mortality in adult female sea otters. So Sarah, I'd love if you could talk about end lactation mm-hmm. syndrome Why are these adult female sea otters so prone to end lactation syndrome and what does it really do to them?
1: So there's um, a couple key things, sort of some background information that's really important to know to sort of figure out why end lactation syndrome or ELS, I'll just abbreviate it from now on, can be a significant cause of mortality. So sea otters are the smallest marine mammal. They've got this really dense fur that keeps them warm in the ocean. And that's really important distinction with sea otters because they actually lack this blubber layer, this fat layer that you see like in whales or in seals. So they don't have this big insulation layer to keep them warm in the cold water. So instead, they rely on their fur. So also to maintain body heat, sea otters have an incredibly high metabolic rate. So they're the smallest marine mammal. They also have the highest metabolic rate. And they also have the highest metabolic rate compared to any other even terrestrial mammal that's a similar size. And so that's really important. This really, really high metabolic rate means that they require a lot of energy just to keep going. And this doesn't even count activity like swimming or reproduction or anything else like that. This is just to keep them going. And with this high metabolic rate, that means they need to eat about 20 to 25 percent of their body weight every day. So those are a couple important, like, physiological features of sea otters, and they're they're the extreme uh, features that they exhibit. And so that's really important when we think about things like other important life history stages that they go through. So female sea otters, they give birth to one pup every year once they turn three or four years old. And reproduction is a big deal because it costs a lot of energy. And as mammals, lactation is the most expensive stage of reproduction it just takes so much energy to produce milk and to give that milk to the offspring and any other energy associated with raising that offspring. Sea otters become pregnant every year, no matter what her condition is or no matter the condition of the environment because pregnancy, relatively speaking, is cheap. However, lactation is very expensive. Key studies by some of the researchers down in UC Santa Cruz, they've actually done these metabolic measurements of females during lactation to actually figure out how much energy is required per day when you're lactating versus when you're not. Dr. Temetz in Santa Cruz has found out that females need anywhere from like more than 90% to upwards of like 108, 110% more calories per day just to sustain herself when she's lactating versus when she's not lactating. Wow. So when we think about that, sea otters already just in general have really high metabolic rates. And then when a female has a pup, her metabolic rate more than doubles. So that's incredible. So, (laughs) so, so how does she compensate for that? She's got to feed a whole lot more. Sea otters feed about 50% of their day of each day. When you're a female that has a pup, you're spending 60% of your day feeding. And the most time that a sea otter can spend feeding and still sustain itself in terms of like health and other activities that are necessary is 60% of their day. So females are maxing out on the amount of time that they're actually able to feed. They're maxing out in terms of the energy that is needed to sustain the lactation and to care for the pup. And females have to do this for about six months. So they have a pretty long dependency period. And so we've noticed just watching sea otters that towards the end of pup dependency period, Females are often really skinny and that's not a good thing for a sea otter. And it, it can happen really rapidly because if you need to eat about a quarter of your body weight a day in prey and you're not meeting that requirement, you can get skinny fairly quickly. And so scientists started noticing this and it was kind of thrown around like, oh, you know, it's, it's this metabolic thing that because females have to expend so much energy for lactation that they just get so skinny and they can't actually meet those requirements with food. So when I started working with sea otters in 2012, this really, really pricked my interest. And knowing that the sea otters in California are a threatened species, well, why aren't we really looking at these females? You know, what's going on here? We kind of have an idea, but no one's really studying it. No one's concentrating on it. So that's where I was kind of like, ooh, this is the project I want to work on. So end lactation syndrome is sort of this metabolic syndrome or phenomenon that affects females that are lactating. So essentially, it is females that are emaciated due to lactation. And if these females cannot procure enough food and they just they continue with this, this emaciation, they end up going downhill, they can be susceptible to diseases and other, other things when their health is poor, then that may lead to mortality.
0: And so with your research in specific, can you give us some parameters on how did you actually study and lactation syndrome?
1: Sure. So to look at ELS, I teamed up with the other sea otter researchers and mostly the folks from California Fish and Wildlife. And the folks at California Fish and Wildlife, they actually necropsy every single sea otter that, that dies in California. So they have this great resource and all these great files of these females. So we went through all of these case files starting in 2006 and going forward from there, looking at females that, that died And because they do necropsies on them, we had the wealth of information about things like what their condition was, if they had any fat, if they were skinny, did they give birth recently, were they lactating? Some key things that we looked at that were really important for our project, we're looking at mammary glands, we're looking at nose wounds, we're looking at basically the reproductive tract and trying to figure out where this female was, was she lactating, was she not lactating?
0: So, in all of those sea otters that the Fish and Wildlife Service necropsied since 2006 that you looked at, what percentage of those sea otters that died was because of end lactation syndrome?
1: Of the females from 2006 through 2012 that died in California that were reproductively active, we found that 56% of them died due to N-lactation syndrome. And that was either N-lactation syndrome as the primary cause of death or a major contributing cause of death, which means that was it was in the top three causes of why they died. Sea otters are, are fairly complicated in that they tend to not die of one thing a lot. Usually they, they have a couple other issues happening that may contribute to mortality. Um, so it's important to look at major causes of mortality. And, and so that's why we kind of just lump them all together. Yeah. But it's a, it's a fairly big percentage of reproductive females that die in California in a population that's threatened.
0: Yeah. And so do you feel that, you know, that's 56% that you found, it seems pretty high. It seems like for something that maybe the sea otter science community wasn't really recognizing, it seems like, wow, that's a very large cause of these adult females mortality. Do you feel like though end lactation syndrome is happening more in recent years than possibly before? Or do you feel like it's just something that is now really being discovered and pinpointed in regards to how many mortalities it's causing?
1: That's a really great question. I don't know if we have We really don't have the answer to that. We can sort of presume a few things. So I definitely think, and I I know this just even from going through all of those necropsy case files, is that in the 90s, people really weren't looking for this. And not until recently were we actually putting the veterinarians at Fish and Wildlife actually putting in these case files like an end lactation syndrome or, uh, you know, something that that is similar to that type of mortality, like it wasn't even listed as a cause of death. Things that would be listed are like mating trauma or emaciation. Well, what is causing this emaciation? That's that's really getting down to it. Okay, if you're skinny, you can die because you're wasting away. But what's really causing that? Could it be um, a heart condition? Could it be because you have some other disease? Or is it because of N-lactation syndrome? And that was really the key part of keying out. Okay, well, these females were healthy. Otherwise, they didn't show any diseases or parasites. They just had a pup. And so I think definitely it is us paying more attention to it. So I, I definitely think it's more it's it's being recognized more and it's being given a name and lactation syndrome.
0: It's, and, not, it's not like some new thing is, is basically the point. It, it, it's right. not like this has never been happening to female sea otters throughout history.
1: Correct. Yeah. yeah, and and the important thing there is is going back to their physiology is that they require such high energetic demands that sea otters they're really sort of ripe for end lactation syndrome. They are they're almost predisposed to if things don't go perfectly during the lactation period that it's very easy for a female to succumb to this and and if she can't pull herself out once she weans that pup then there's a really high chance that she could end up dying from that.
0: You know, having done this research now and, and your colleagues that you work with, do you think that there are human actions, you know, whether it's pollution or bad interactions or habitat loss, things like that? Do you think that there are human actions that are mm-hmm. affecting this end lactation syndrome that you're seeing?
1: So I think that's another – It's every, what I've noticed since working with Seattle's is that everything's really complicated. So – That's also, I I think, has a really complicated answer that has, has sort of in some facets been looked at and then in some others hasn't been studied yet, but we have maybe some ideas so and lactation syndrome, it's, it seems like for sea otters, it can happen just because of their physiology. But a big thing that we're proposing is that resource limitation is a significant driver of causing this mortality. So resource limitation in this case is food limitation. And the sea otters in California have been at carrying capacity for a fairly long time. And carrying capacity means, or one one way to look at it is that sea otters in those areas where they're at this population maximum is that all individuals are not actually eating their most favored prey in terms of high calories, for example. Like there aren't a lot of big urchins in Monterey or Big Sur anymore. And there also aren't a whole lot of other really high calorie nutrient rich foods in that area anymore. So sea otters have Uh, sort of resorted to other strategies such as uh, resource partitioning. So in the same area, females, they have very small home ranges and she may live in an area with four other females. One female may eat snails, one female may eat crabs, one female may eat brittle stars, one female may eat a different type of crab. And so they end up resource partitioning because there just isn't enough high quality prey to go around for everyone. And in that case, if you are lactating and you have these incredibly high energetic demands, if you're not eating a really nutrient-dense food during that time, you may end up on the wrong side of the balance equation of energy in and energy out.
0: Is this and lactation syndrome seen, for instance, off the coast of Alaska? So that's, that's another thing that in other parts of different sea otter p-
1: subpopulations, it hasn't really been looked at. So there is one case in the literature where in a location where it was thought that sea otters were at or near carrying capacity, that they saw one case of a very skinny female with a large pup. She wasn't in really great condition, and then they never saw her again. So that could possibly be an example of N-lactation syndrome. However, in Alaska and in Washington, it's a lot harder to track the sea otters there because they have a different type of coastline. If you can imagine a map of California, The coastline is fairly straight and it's fairly almost one-dimensional. It's really linear. There aren't a lot of nooks and crannies. There's not a lot of islands. When you look at uh, the coast off of British Columbia and in different places like along southeast Alaska, there's all these places and all these niches that sea otters can go into and can reinvade. So there's a lot more habitat for them to go to and to forage. And so that's actually one of the big ideas now about why sea otter populations in California haven't really increased at the rate that is expected or seen in those areas such as British Columbia is that the coastline isn't as complicated. And so there's really not not a lot of resource for them because they're restricted to the near shore environment because they don't dive very deep so so they they kind of have to be really close to the shore and when there's not a whole lot of coastline because it's not convoluted then there really isn't much much more for them to do where to go and you get you get to carrying capacity and your food resources aren't great. So at least the sea otters in California, the thinking is really they need to expand north and south in order to increase those population numbers.
0: You brought up sea otters off the California coast kind of needing to expand their range so that they can spread out more and have more resources in terms of coastline and food as well. Just in the last few years, I've noticed that there's been several spottings of the southern sea otter, like off of Laguna Beach or off of even San Diego. Do you and your sea otter colleagues, do you feel like those spottings farther south are kind of fluke occurrences or do you feel like that's possibly actually sea otters, you know, venturing farther south and trying to seek out new resources in terms of space and food? So when we hear about those cases, it's
1: it's kind of exciting because just as you mentioned, it's a sea otter that is has gone out of its where it was born and has ventured on to somewhere else that sea otters aren't established yet, which is
0: but they previously exactly, existed
1: there. Right? Exactly. Exactly. So we know that they can inhabit those areas. They just haven't expanded that way. So when when we hear about that, the the otters tend to be subadults or maybe males. A lot of them are subadults because they're in that transition time where they're trying to figure out where they want to end up and they don't, you know, they're not reproducing, they're not holding territory, so they have a little bit of flexibility to explore. And so we need that with sea otters. If a male sea otter, he may or may not hold a territory, but maybe you know, during a certain part of the year the male may travel and go further north or further south. And so these are kind of individuals that we hope will establish like a a founder population in a new area. So if if enough sea otters move into a new area, maybe more sea otters will keep moving. So if it's just males in the beginning, that's not really going to help because they're not actually giving birth to pups. So we need the females to follow them. It's encouraging, but it's also it, it is likely probably the individual is a subadult that's exploring. We'd like to hear more of these sightings and more than just a single individual going down to LA or San Diego. But, you know, it's, it's hopefully a step in the right direction for more individuals to start doing that because theoretically the, the resources, the food resources should be better down there. But again, that also depends on fishery interaction. So I, I didn't exactly touch on that before because food is such an important resource for sea otters of course, they're going to compete with people in terms of food. Sea otters, because they have to eat so much, of course, they're going to affect their prey's populations. And because people have technology to to really impact those populations as well, of course, there's going to be some headbutting there.
0: Yeah. So in thinking about what we've been talking about, I'm thinking about the kelp forests off of San Diego's coastline right now. And over the last several decades, those the health of those kelp forest ecosystems have really declined. And that's somewhat similar for a lot of the Southern California coastline. You touched on earlier the importance of a sea otter in a kelp forest habitat and how crucial they are in making that ecosystem healthy. Do you feel that a new founded population of sea otters, for instance, off of the San Diego coastline would actually strengthen the health of a kelp forest ecosystem?
1: Yeah, I think... That's definitely a absolute possibility. I'm not sure exactly what's what's causing, you know, health declines in in the kelp forest down there. But sea otters originally that was their habitat, and we know at least in a little bit more north that sea otters play this crucial role in the kelp forest. So I I can't imagine why kelp forest also in in San Diego wouldn't benefit from sea otters. Um, so I think you know that that it could be a great possibility if sea otters ended up going more south and even other pop other ecosystems like the uh the eelgrass ecosystem within elkhorn slough um it's it's recently been shown that sea otters are keystone species in eelgrass ecosystems which is amazing no one anticipated that and you've got elkhorn slough just south of uh, santa cruz that is a really impacted area due to agriculture and runoff and even just people like recreation and just people living there, the natural ecosystem had been pretty impacted um, with sediment, et cetera. And then sea otters started really using Elkhorn slough a lot. And it ended up being that, they were actually, they cleaned up the ecosystem. Like the eelgrass beds are just so much more healthier since the otters have come back. So yeah. sea otters, they really do play this crucial role because they are these top predators in the ecosystem about regulating what goes down the food web.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that it's such a great example that you can apply to really any kind of predator in the ocean. You, you can think of it as like, okay, this ecosystem isn't doing well. And why would we introduce a predator? You know, it seems almost contradictory, but I think sea otters represent a really great example of you introduce the predator that should be there and it actually facilitates a healthier ecosystem.
1: Right. It balances things out. And if, you know, and if you have the right, players in in the ecosystem or whatever you're looking at and you you really understand the natural history and you understand the dynamics then then there's way you know you might be able to figure out what's going on and to make things better
0: to kind of summarize i think what we've talked about today in in terms of sea otters and their population off the california coast i feel like from your research about end lactation syndrome and i know this happens with research a lot It basically shows that we just need so much more research, you know, we need we need more research on sea otters kind of opens this door to this new aspect of a sea otter's life and death. And I think, you know, for listeners, if any of you out there love sea otters and are inspired by what Sarah and I have talked about today, I think that it's a call to action. We need more information about sea otter populations in all of their Population areas, and when I post this podcast episode, listeners, I will be linking to Sarah's research paper that she recently published. Um, you guys can read the abstract of that scientific paper and learn more there. And I will also be linking to some really great sea otter websites that Sarah is gonna pass on to me, so you guys can learn more about sea otters, learn more about their biology and physiology and ecology and a number of the other topics that we touched on today all about sea otters so maybe when you look at a sea otter you'll still think that they're adorable and cute but maybe you'll also think about them in a bit of a different way as well so Sarah I want to thank you so much for all of the positive change that you're creating for the ocean learning more about sea otters is super important super vital in helping to understand the population and hopefully help it increase more and more back to its original population size. And I also want to thank you for being on the show today. I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much. It
1: was a pleasure.
0: You just heard Sarah Chin, marine physiologist at Sonoma State University, studying both the lives and deaths of California's sea otters. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at OceanAllison.com. And to help keep the podcast episode coming, visit Patreon.com slash OceanAllison. And tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.